I do doth declare upon the ears of babes that that was Lytith. That was the Harry Potter frog choir from Prisoner of Azkaban. But <laughs> quoting, why? Yes. Why did you cover it? Quoting William Shakespeare's Macbeth. Lore, why are we covering Shakespeare today? Well, Joel Cohen decided to add another cover, if you will, to this overly covered, you might say, play. Well, <laughs> Shakespeare. it's funny that you say that because among Shakespeare's works, Macbeth, surprisingly, although it's been covered on stage countless times, the amount of movie adaptations is surprisingly low compared hmm. to his other adaptations. Much Ado About Nothing has about five... And, Hamlet. Yeah, Hamlet had countless. Yeah. Uh, but this only has three serious adaptations. You would think there'd be more hmm. out of this based on how influential it was in terms of just our vernacular and where a bunch of phrases came from. Mm -hmm. We should introduce the pod. Welcome to <laughs> Film is Lit, the podcast where we take a piece of literature and compare and contrast to its film or television adaptation. My name is Danny. I am the film expert, self-appointed. And my name is Laura, she, her, and I'm the literature expert. And now singer after that opening. <laughs> it took a few tries. It took a few tears and some Kleenexes, but we got through it. Some tears and some beers. Yes. <laughs> and beers help everything we endorse <laughs> beers this pod is sponsored by beers not if you're underage well yes of course but today i'm drinking a, a socal beer it's from this uh smog city from torrance california their beer is good we're not shout sponsored out. by them yeah but shout out beer. smog city today on the pod if you couldn't tell from our opening we are covering Shakespeare's Macbeth, otherwise known as the Scottish play, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the 2021 adaptation by Joel Cohen. He usually works with his brother, Ethan Cohen, but this is the first movie he's made without him on his own. The but he worked with his wife, so honestly, he's still using a crush. Yeah, his wife, Frances McDormand, <laughs> who plays Lady Macbeth. The movie is The Tragedy of Macbeth also starring Denzel Washington. Ever heard of him? <laughs> I didn't know this. Denzel Washington is a trained Shakespearean actor. So is Francis McDormand. Yeah, I, I had no idea. And he uh, tackles this material with panache, with ease, yeah. as his own dimension to the character, which we'll get to. Mm -hmm. And so does Francis McDormand. But let's get right into our journey. So Laura is a big Shakespeare head, okay? <laughs> yeah. She loves the guy. I, I mean, do. get over yourself. <laughs> no, no, this is probably one of the most influential writers of all time. Um, <laughs> we've covered Stephen King in the past. He's probably one of the most well-known, influential modern writers. writers. Yeah, for horror. Technically, but, Shakespeare is modern, considering he was writing in early modern English. That's true. Um, <laughs> still hard to understand for someone like me, of course, <laughs> who, who right. didn't study literature in college. A little tough for a film major to grasp the language used. <laughs> anybody, anybody. Yes, which is something that we'll bring up when we're discussing the movie and whether or not yeah. that was a good choice or not or what. But Laura, you are a big old Shakespeare head, <laughs> a big old nerd, but it's cool to be a nerd these days. Big Bang Theory made it so. Yeah. Well, I, Bazinga. You're right. You're right. <laughs> I actually really Bazinga. don't like that show. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's get to your background with Shakespeare and with Macbeth. Go. Well, of course, I have a long standing relationship with Shakespeare. I probably hadn't seriously read any of his plays until college. We did read, you know, Romeo and Juliet sort of his his romance tragedies i guess in high school mm -hmm. but i didn't get serious about studying him until dr flory <laughs> so a shout previous out to guest. him of course so i actually i covered macbeth in dr flory's film and lit class i did not cover this in our shakespeare class i believe I was a junior but we actually compared macbeth to its adaptation scotland pa 
which came out in 2001. I thought it came out in the 90s, but it came out in 2001. And it has people like Christopher Walken, James Reborn, Andy Dick. Kevin Corrigan. Yeah. Yeah. Maura Turney. It's funny. It's kind of, it's funny because we just talked about how a Muppet Christmas Carol really leans into the humor in that mm-hmm. adaptation of, of Dickens' work. And I think that movie really leans into the humor in this. There's not a lot of humor in the tragedy of Macbeth, obviously. Mm-hmm. But if anyone knows how to make a penis joke, it's Shakespeare. So there's oh, definitely yeah. some humor in this play. And I think that's a really fun adaptation. If you have time, go watch it. Basically, it's about a, a drive-in and some people... Macbeth and Lady Macbeth basically steal the idea of the drive-in. They steal that kind of IP from someone who, Duncan, who develops it. Mm -hmm. So anyway, if you have time, you can go look that up. That's where I actually first read Macbeth. And I was lucky enough to really come into my Shakespearean roots with not only Dr. Flory, but after I went to study English in England for my senior year of college, which was incredible, I got to see not only a couple copies of Shakespeare's first folio, which is a collection of 36 of his original plays. And I also was lucky enough to go on a school trip to Stratford-upon-Avon, where he was born and lived. So I was able to see his childhood home. Very cool. And Hathaway's house, and I even got to see Henry V at the Royal Shakespeare Company. So it was a really, really special trip. If anyone has the opportunity, I highly suggest going. Maybe I'll post some of those pictures on social media, because they're really fun. (laughs) A few of those pictures were in your Tinder profile. Oh, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. I know I'm right. Yeah. I remember. I remember. <laughs> well, some of them in England. I don't know if I was in Stratford oh. upon Avon, but gotcha. but yeah, that, that same trip. You're right. So, oh, and the other thing too is I've, I've gotten the opportunity to tour the Globe twice, which is his theater troupe's old stomping grounds. Um, not in the original location because it burned a couple times to the ground, but it's on the Thames in London. Again, if you have a chance to see a play there, it's incredible. So yeah, I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of my journey. I, again, I read it with Dr. Flory, likened it to Scotland PA, had a great time reading it. And so this was the second time that I read it and watched it with Danny the other night and my dad. We had a good time watching it. On Apple TV Plus. (laughs) Everybody but John Hamm as apple tv plus right that's a funny commercial it just came out <laughs> Jokes, yeah yeah well i first read shakespeare my freshman year of high school in mr de christopher's class it was othello was the very first thing i read and i had known about shakespeare growing up but i read othello and was just like whoa this is something this is real stakes this is real drama and Othello might be my favorite still mm. Shakespeare piece. Uh, you always you always remember your first. Um, <laughs> and then, yeah, throughout high school, I read much. That's ad- a good sexual innuendo, speaking yeah. of Shakespeare. Um, read Much Ado About Nothing, Midsummer's Night Dream, Hamlet. And I watched the Kenneth Branagh. He did a four-hour adaptation. He adapted the entire play. Mm-hmm. That was the experiment of his movie to adapt every single line. Mm-hmm. And so that movie's four hours and change. Watched that. Did it my whole report on that my senior year of high school. But even in college, it felt like I had come across every single Shakespearean adaptation except for Macbeth. And as a filmmaker, I haven't even seen Throne of Blood, which is a Akira Kurosawa movie, and that's a loose adaptation of Macbeth. Mm-hmm. And everyone's like, oh, you got to see it, you got to see it, but I'd never gotten around to it. So believe it or not, this movie was the first time that I've been exposed to the story. And I loosely knew the plot, but I didn't fully know the, the ins and outs. I knew that Macbeth killed the king, became king himself, and that both him and Lady Macbeth went crazy. That's the extent, which is the plot. But 
as someone going in blind to the smaller nuances of the story, the character machinations and uh, little details, I was completely lost. And so I do not recommend going into this movie without reading a full plot synopsis because at and, the very least if not reading the whole play yes exactly because the subtleties and the elegance of shakespeare were unfortunately lost on me because i couldn't comprehend what they were saying and this goes into our analysis the movie is pretty much a direct adaptation of the text they don't change the language at all save for one line which we'll we'll get to but yeah like kenneth Branagh's hamlet this is a straight ripped from the page to the screen however where kenneth Branagh's hamlet was filmed like a movie with real locations and it was meant to be cinematic joel cohen's approach very much was to make it seem like a stage adaptation theatrical yes to make it feel like this could be something you're watching right in front of you with actors and a rotating cast and costumes and mm-hmm. a, a stage with stage lighting. And the look of the film, it's filmed in black and white in crisp digital cinematography. What's the aspect ratio? It's the Academy mm-hmm. aspect ratio, so four by three. So it, it mm-hmm. looks like it has that box right. shape clearly inspired by german expressionism from the 20s and 30s which is the austere production design big open empty sets and harsh shadows high contrast and you kind of get these distinct geometric shapes within the buildings and the shadows and the stairs Mm -hmm. it's pretty much empty sets but it is immaculate product production design immaculate cinematography i have no doubt that this is going to be nominated i predict that it's going to win right now they have dune winning i would i would be happy if dune won of course course. but i honestly if i'm dune's getting another movie right it's getting a sequel (laughs) so i'd be fine if bruno del bonnell he was a cinematography i'd be fine if he won because from a visual standpoint this is perfect it is beautiful it is stunning crisp Yeah, so I admired it in that regard. But kind of my blanket statement right now is that unfortunately the movie lost me in being so loyal to the Mm. text to the point where I'm just like, I'm sorry, I'm just not intellectually there to grasp what's going on. I think you're selling yourself a little bit short. I think if you had at least read a synopsis or read the play before, I think it would have washed over you in a different way. So I wouldn't say that you're not intellectually smart enough to but even, grasp it. Even then though, I had to do so much research to know exactly what they were saying. Cuz like in high school when you read Shakespeare adaptations, one side is the actual real text and the other side is the dumbed down explainer version of the text. I guess. Yeah, I I would say a couple things. Yeah, the first thing is that ironically, when you were talking about how theatrical this adaptation is, ironically, there's actually a lot of CGI that went into the set production, Mm -hmm. which I think is really interesting considering how starkly sparse right Mm -hmm. yeah the the sets are and so that's actually very opposite kind of like what we were talking again about a christmas carol is that even though a lot of this stuff looks very simple it's actually a lot of cgi which i thought was really interesting but also to give them credit a lot of it looks mechanical mechanically built so good on them for that and the other thing that i was going to talk about was how this is a little bit of a debate especially with Shakespeare, but really with any kind of play about whether it's better to experience the play or the show first and then go back and apply your sort of visual cues to the written text, or if it's better to go into a play or a movie having read that play and giving yourself the context sort of baseline and then to be able to enjoy the play or the movie later. Mm -hmm. I have a particular stance on it. I don't know if you think that this experience has informed your opinion, but Mm -hmm. my, my personal opinion, what I've experienced is that 
I guess maybe too sort of the the poor man's experience. You should always read a play before you go and spend your money seeing a production, mm-hmm. right? Because if you go in, like I had already read Macbeth, and I had a little bit of trouble making some plot connections mm-hmm. while we were watching the movie. And we had to rent the movie. So I think in that way, it's a little bit of a bummer that I spent money and like stuff got oh. lost on me. Yeah. So it's I, I just think that you get so much more out of the the experience if you have the context there to help you along with it. Well, clearly for this movie, I should have done that. I mean, cl- I agree with you there. The only one example I have is just from my own personal life. My mom took me to see a stage production of The Crucible when I was in seventh grade. It was the the students at Westfield State University were putting on a production. And mm-hmm. I was like, my mom wanted to see it. I'm like, oh, whatever. And, you know, <laughs> I, I went begrudgingly with her. And I have I had no experience with that play i was actually pretty young to be seeing it i was the youngest person in the audience but i was totally blown away and i got the bug of i guess dramatic stories from that one stage so i think that what i'm trying to say is there are many exceptions but for Macbeth, yes i should have 100 percent read the play not having known that it would be directly page to screen i guess but the thing is yeah. i did know i did know it was oh, going to okay. be the shakes but I, I didn't know but i but... went in anyways yeah. and that was it was just wrong i was wrong to do that but you only get one you only well, get well, one see that's the thing that's and that's why i say it's kind of like the poor man's you know to use a colloquialism that shakespeare honestly probably created yes <laughs> um, yeah uh you know the poor man's approach because like you said you only get one experience one first time one first time and i don't know if that's necessarily true with texts other than something like a murder mystery Mm -hmm. because with Macbeth, even if you know even if you read a plot outline which is another thing that's really smart even before you begin to approach the text the full text to Mm -hmm. help you kind of make highs and lows of plot point of the plot points it's not like you're going to lose a lot. You're here. I guess what I'm trying to say is you're going to gain more by continuing to visit the story mm-hmm. in most cases, other than, again, like I said, like a, a thriller or a murder mystery. Yeah. And that's just not true if you're watching a production. Yeah, right. You only get one shot. Exactly. Your first impression. Yeah. The funny thing is this movie feels like you're watching a production, but an yeah. elevated one. Okay. So I'll say this as well even though i wasn't engaged with it on a story sense because i couldn't follow it or on a dialogue sense because i couldn't follow that as well we've already mentioned amazing production design and cinematography i mean just the absolute absolute best of 2021 that's right better than dune i said it i said it and i love dune with all my heart but perfect in that regard and also two acting powerhouses out of Denzel and Francis McDormand. They are truly the best of the best, the best actors of their generation and the current all generations right now. I mean, Francis McDormand has three Oscars. Denzel has one. Hey, this is Danny just interjecting. Denzel Washington actually has two Oscars. One for glory and one for training day. All right, back to the episode. And he's for sure going to get nominated for this. He might not win, but this is top tier. And them being older adds a new dimension to their characters because they're usually played by, what, 30 to 40-year-olds? Sure. Now, these are people who are in their 60s. They look both look great for 60, oh, yeah. by the way. But this kind of adds a new dimension, which is like, this is their last chance for legacy, for the throne. I was going to talk about that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So let's get right into that. Well, yeah. So first I was, because we've talked about how important it is to go into this play with some context. Sure. I was going to do a quick synopsis. Yeah. And then a quick analysis of the, of the context in which it was written. I was getting ahead of you. I apologize. (laughs) 
go so ahead. Should we, should we do synopsis or context first? Your pick. I'll do synopsis. quick analysis. Oh. <laughs> we are not on the same page. Let's, but... I'm going to introduce the play first. Okay. All right. I'll stop talking. Okay. And I'm going to stop talking right now. Okay. And I am <laughs> not talking. Go ahead. <laughs> the best that we can tell, Macbeth was first performed in England in 1606. It is in five acts. Its written structure is in blank verse, which I'm going to define. Yeah, I have no <laughs> idea what that is. Blank verse is an unrhymed iambic pentameter, which I'm going to define further. <laughs> iambic pentameter is five alternating unstressed and then stressed syllables per line. So then I'm going to break down what an iamb is. <laughs> an iamb is basically an unstressed and then a stressed syllable. So I pulled out a line to exemplify this. One of my favorite lines in the whole play. Screw your courage to the sticking place. Act one, scene seven, line 60. Delivered by Lady Macbeth. So listen, so we're going to do iambic pentameter. Screw your courage to the sticking place. Do you see how the unstressed begins the line? Mm -hmm. Screw your yeah. courage to the sticking place. Okay. okay, so you kind of see how that... I'm following. Okay, Shakespeare normally did write in iambic pentameter. I think that's pretty widely known. Mm -hmm. um, but this unrhymed iambic pentameter is very traditionally used in his tragedies. Rhyming iambic pentameter was mostly used in his comedies or people who were in love. Gotcha. So it kind of showed that relationship between their ability to rhyme with each other. That was kind of like a mm -hmm. a way of using rhyming to reflect their closeness relation their close their closeness. So that's kind of the structure of the whole play. So let me just go over a quick synopsis. So we open with a scene where Macbeth has been very victorious. He is then sort of traveling back to Scotland to receive his benefits for being victorious in this war. He's traveling back to Scotland with his best friend Banquo. They run into the weird or wayward or witch sisters, the three sisters. Mm -hmm. And they deliver a prophecy that Macbeth will become the Thane of Cawdor. And then from there, he's going to become the king. And then they travel back. And from this prophecy... Macbeth writes his wife, enter Lady Macbeth, a letter describing this prophecy. She gets it in her head that the way that they're going to do this is by murdering Duncan the King. She gets all horned she, up immediately. Immediately. <laughs> immediately. She decides what they're going to do is murder Duncan. Almost like she like opens the letter and she's just like, so we're, kill so we're killing the king? Anything. We're going to fucking... Oh. And that's going to be key. That's going to be key when we talk about themes and we introduce gender roles in this play, which are... Ex essential to talking about this play so anyway she opens the letter she decides they're going to kill duncan duncan coincidentally decides to spend the next literally like the next night at their castle and why why does he come there does it ever explained um i forget that plot point exactly but i think basically he's just like congratulating macbeth mm. on how well he's done in this gotcha. battle that makes sense yeah so within the week everybody's at their castle Lady Macbeth pushes her husband to murder Duncan. What a scene that is. That's probably one of our key scenes is when she pushes Macbeth to go through with the murder. Macbeth murders Duncan. Spoilers! And then Duncan's body is discovered. And from there... The plot unfolds. The plot unfolds and unfolds in a downward motion. Yes. So <laughs> yeah, both Macbeth and Lady Macbeth spiral into madness and then duncan's son with the aid of mcduff storm the castle and end up killing macbeth yes pretty much that's it yeah so we can talk about themes now we can dive into analysis yeah. the three themes that are mostly highlighted in macbeth that i think we're probably going to break down the most are fate destiny and free will gender roles in general mm -hmm. and ambition Ooh, yeah if this is an intense play we're gonna dive into it 
Yeah, let's start with ambition, that last one there. Mm -hmm. So this, from an obvious standpoint, has that universal message of you need to earn your place in life. You can't take any shortcuts. You can't get where you want to be through malevolent methods. And of course, that's exactly what the Macbeths do, is they kill the king. Murder is bad. (laughs) Obviously, and that's not a way to ascend to the throne to kill somebody. And basically, that feeling of an unearned position and the evils that they had to undergo to get where they are eats them from within. It could be argued that the witches don't even interact with Macbeth for the rest of the play. Like, he interacts with them once, and then later on, all the birds he sees, the ravens, or he interacts with the witch again, that could all be in Macbeth's head because mm. they're both going crazy. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of it. It's, I thought going in that the witches would be a much bigger figure in the movie, but it's actually not the case. They have about three scenes, great scenes. Catherine Hunter, who plays the witches, oh, man, talk about scary and incredible and powerful yeah, Catherine Hunter Hot or Hadrapateros, I think she was is her her full name. Uh, inspired, she is a, a another classically trained Shakespearean theater actor. Yeah, played Puck on stage for a while. Also plays Mrs. Fig in Harry Potter. Whoa, cool! Fun fact, isn't that fun? But yeah, yeah. has this androgynous look to her, which is also so inspired, right? Yeah, and can she can contort her body like a bird. Okay, it's... yeah. I mean, this kind of leads us to talk about the opening of the movie. Yes. Holy shit. Yes. If you can, if you can't see this in the theater, because I think it's already out, but if you want to watch this film, I recommend completely watching it at night, completely dark. The opening scene is just of her voice yeah. reciting the opening, like, like this like super creepy guttural like, like smoker's voice yeah years of tobacco yeah. smoke just there, and there's yeah. nothing on the screen again black screen and i had the experience of literally feeling like she was crouching behind our television yeah this, like the sound ready design to jump out sound design's incredible it was yeah. so creepy and what i really love is that sets the tone so in the play the witches are what open it. Mm-hmm. And they kind of serve as this, like, technically, like, the frame of this play. But she opens it as one voice. And what I love that they do, especially when she confronts Banquo and Macbeth, is they turn her into three witches, but only through the reflection. And that iteration is so scary. Right. <laughs> it's just... So that that's a change, right? From normally yeah. when this is adapted, the three witches are three different characters. Characters. Right. But in the movie she starts out as one person talking to other people who aren't there. So it could be argued that the two other witches are also her. I mean, they have her voice too. Or in so. her mind. Right. Or, right. Yeah. It's so, just another level of creepy, which I it's it's important to set up that this is a tragedy. Mm-hmm. And that creepiness level does it immediately. Yes, and that's probably the best shot in the movie where the witch is standing in her cloak over this body of water and you see the reflection is two witches and then smoke goes over the frame and then all of a sudden there's three figures there. And it's really important to point out that fog or smoke as well because the entire a huge motif throughout Macbeth is what you see is maybe not reality. And that ambiguity of reality is heightened with how scary that you can't see through that fog in the very beginning. Like that's that's a literal, like you can't see through this fog. Mm-hmm. You can't see through people. You can't trust their intentions. Like that's a like literal imagery right there. That's, oh, it's just so beautiful. And so do you think Joel Cohen made that decision to turn the witch into one character that, triples herself 
why do you think, how do you think that adds to that message? I think it adds another level of uncertainty and it Mm. just makes you feel even more uncomfortable because number one, I think the idea that she's an illusion is kind of disproved by the fact that both Banquo and Macbeth see this entity. Right. And we also start that scene out with just her. So it's not like they're both having a vision. Right. The movie introduces her as a character. Yeah. Yeah. So so that's a definite character. But then by introducing the idea that she's three iterations that might not even be there might be either a projection of her own mind or of Macbeth's. I think that just adds to the effect. Mm-hmm. I love it. I think it's great. <laughs> Agreed. I think even like if you were doing this as a stage play, if you were doing a stage design, instead of having, obviously there's water where she's reflected into that pool in the movie. But if you had a mirror, I think that would be another beautiful way of using one actor and mm-hmm. having three people projected. Mm-hmm. Because then again, like it's a reflection, it's not a real thing, but three things are there. So I think that would just be like, oh, I, I just, I loved it. I loved that yeah. whole idea. Anyway, the couple other things I wanted to add to ambition is that I think Shakespeare makes it clear that being ambitious is fine. And in fact, he describes ambition as being a very masculine trait, mm-hmm. but that sort of gender role thing that we can get into later is kind of undercut because what happens is that Lady Macbeth becomes more ambitious than Macbeth. And she really has to push him to make this prophecy come true. And so the real issue is how Macbeth's ambition doesn't stop. As soon as he becomes king, he's still murdering people to make sure that he stays king. So I think that's a really key difference is like ambition is fine as long as you're not driven to, you know, at worst murder people to make sure that you keep your position. Well, that's paralleled in Hamlet, which I don't know if it was written before or after Macbeth, but very similar where Hamlet's quest to avenge his father is very noble. He is the heir to the throne. Quote unquote, has the right. Right. Yeah. To seek revenge. But he ends up going too far with it, causing his own downfall and for Ophelia to be neglected. And so she dies. And so his whole world crumbles because he also went too far with his ambition. Right. So Macbeth ascends the throne almost immediately in yeah. like act two, I think it is, out of five. And yeah, then... it's like minute 28 in the film where he's yeah. king. And then he still kills Macduff's family. And he still makes sure to murder Banquo. Yeah. Like those things are not like he's past the point of no return at that point because he just consistently like he's insecure in his power. And I think that's really where like we can kind of transition into talking about gender roles, about how he doesn't necessarily like fulfill, quote unquote, the gender roles of being a masculine person in the relationship between him and Lady Macbeth. Sure. And then as soon as she pushes him to become ruthless, mm-hmm. then that's actually the, that we can talk about this, but basically that's when Shakespeare reveals that he's ac- actually critiquing the masculine gender role of being ambitious and mm-hmm. being ruthless and being violent. Right. Because he's saying that if you hold those things up, then you're going to end up destroying family values, like with the Duff and... Banquo. Right. Well, this is exactly what frustrated me the most about my experience watching the movie, which is like, I didn't know who Macduff was to Macbeth. I didn't know his position. I didn't know why he would want to kill his family and him himself. Also with Banquo, that whole, you know, him being killed and his son being kidnapped by Ross I didn't get that as well. Yeah. So this is why it was frustrating because you see the beauty in the image. You see the power of the performances, but I just couldn't engage. I could only admire it from a distance because I couldn't get these the smaller well, nuances. It's interesting if we want to talk about the importance of motive in, yes. in, in storytelling mechanics. I think that's a 
great lesson in why motive is very compelling. Yes. Because we need to know why people are making moves. Yeah, I got the motive <laughs> of why they wanted to kill Duncan. Sure, like, I of got course. that. Right, right, right. But it doesn't make sense why scenes on scenes on scenes are spent with Macbeth hunting down the people who could possibly either threaten his throne or what I want to talk about a little more is, is again, what's going to push us into this gender role conversation about why Macbeth is feeling threatened about not having any power in the first place. All right, let's, let's do that. Let's talk about that. Okay, so we can kind of define kind of generally how Elizabethan era women and men were expected to be, I think we haven't really come very far <laughs> since the beginning of time where men are expected to be the leaders and the thinkers and the doers, right? And women are supposed to be very subservient and they're supposed to support their man, right? And this uh -huh. leaves very little ambiguity or flexibility with any kind of gender identity, gender roles, et cetera, et cetera, right? So the fact that Lady Macbeth is the one that has to push Macbeth to actually act on the surface can make her look a little bit like a shrew, mm -hmm. right? Like she's like bothering him and bugging him. Like she she really has to push him to murder Duncan. At, at one point, he's like, you know what? If we fail, is it worth it? Like I'm yeah. not going through it. And she has to talk him into it. And the way that she talks him into it is by attacking his masculinity. And that really reveals how insecure Macbeth is about his masculinity. Right. And the way that we kind of... There's there's a super subtle hint about why even Lady Macbeth is aware that both of them are very touchy about their power is because they have not been able to produce an heir. Mm -hmm. A male heir. This idea comes from a line in Act 1, Scene 7, lines 54 through 55. I have given suck and know how tender tis to love the babe that milks me. So this suggests that they've had a child and it has died. And that situation has given rise in both of them to make them feel like they're not living up to their gender role or the societal expectations of a couple having a child, having mm -hmm. especially a male child. Right. It's clearly expected based on other people's expectations that they should have had an heir and they're at an age where that doesn't really happen for people at all. So the only changed line in the entire movie is that originally Macbeth is talking to his wife about their supposed roles and he says, bring forth men, children only, for thy undaunted metal should produce nothing but males. So in the movie, it's very subtle. It's changed to should have produced nothing but males, meaning that we should have had a boy. It's too late for us now. And then Denzel pauses for a minute and realizes that he said something pretty harsh to his wife and that further pushes him to kill the king. Mm -hmm. So I just thought that's when, you know, talking about changes, it's interesting that the only, <laughs> the one change is and that I, a verb, yeah, and I past think tense. It's, I think it's because they're so old. Yes. I, yeah. And I, I think that that's another key reason why he decides to kill Banquo and his son. So, because remember in the beginning prophecy, they say that Macbeth will ascend the throne but Banquo's offspring will eventually take over. Yes. And so I think that that really cements the fact that, again, at, at, like that pushes Macbeth over the line, whereas he could have just stopped at being king. He had this mm -hmm. feeling like if he didn't take care of Banquo and his son, where Banquo clearly has like, quote unquote, fulfilled his masculine duty of producing an heir, that's why Macbeth continuously tries to hunt him and his son, even though he's his best friend. See, it makes sense now that we're talking about it. Right. I wish I knew that <laughs> earlier. Well, and the other thing, too, is that at the very end, Macbeth doesn't really show much remorse. No. Because the, the watershed moment, <laughs> to borrow 
112263's <laughs> plotline device <laughs> mm-hmm. is that murder of Duncan. Yes. But what happens after the murder of Duncan, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth kind of go in opposite directions, right? Macbeth assumes that masculine, more violent attitude of no remorse and no turning back now, so let's just lean into it. And then Lady Macbeth is overcome by her guilt and ends up killing herself, committing suicide because of the guilt that she holds. Which in the movie, it's slightly changed to be something up to your interpretation because the last person seen next to Lady Macbeth was Ross creeping up the stairs. And this is another change. The movie focuses a lot more on Ross and makes him the supposed third murderer. I didn't know about this until I researched it but makes him into this figure who is basically on whoever's side will benefit him. So I think it's heavily implied that he pushed Lady Macbeth down the stairs. Yeah, that's a huge change that I I didn't see coming. But the guy who plays Roth, what is his name? Alex? Alex Hassel. Hassel. He was great. Yeah, so he... Wonderful addition. Yeah, he co-found the factory theater company in uh, the UK. So he's a Hmm. classically trained theater actor. He also played Translucent for three episodes in The Boys, the Amazon series, The Boys. Uh, He played like a New Yorker, but he's from England. And yeah, he was great. To kind of close Macbeth's gender role story, (laughs) the, the important thing to remember is that Shakespeare criticizes the tendency toward violence by demonstrating how empty Macbeth's life is in the very end. He gives this speech right before Macduff murders or decapitates him. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And he says, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Yes. And I'm like, that's where that phrase came from which one full of sound and fury signifying nothing oh that's what roger ebert used in a lot of his reviews like for big dumb action movies he'd use that line i mean yeah that makes sense because it's literally the rock bottom for macbeth he's about to be murdered or killed in action i guess and he realizes that all of his violent tendencies to keep his power has only brought him to his fatal fate mm-hmm. <laughs> so right so that's i think that's something that's commonly misread about macbeth because macbeth is criticized for being fairly misogynistic and sexist because it makes lady macbeth become a shrew and this kind of driving force behind the murder of macduff mm-hmm. and that's not true i think she's a very complex character who's been hurt in the past by the death of her offspring and possibly her only offspring that she's ever been able to bring to Mm -hmm. life, I guess. Yes. And what Shakespeare suggests is that it's literally the societal pressure to produce not only children, but male heirs that has caused this entire tragedy. Exactly. That's society... (laughs) thinks that she should have produced male heirs. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. like, I, I I, think it's a very shallow reading mm-hmm. to consider this as misogynistic. I think, obviously, Shakespeare was smarter than that, and he understood the subtleties of societal expectations. And this especially comes from the fact that he was writing under Queen Elizabeth, hashtag partial hero of mine. She wasn't perfect, but she was a sole ruler who had to shed her female identity much like lady macbeth because of the expectations that were put on her and so and she never married and she never produced an heir slay lizzie i know exactly i wrote i actually wrote my like final like senior thesis on her behavior and the speeches that she gave to literally (laughs) specifically shed her feminine identity and assume a masculine identity so that people would take her seriously as a singular ruler who was not married. That's what I wrote my senior thesis about because she's incredible. But she wasn't perfect. Uh-huh. Obviously, she No one is. <laughs> well, yeah, but she was also like, you know, a 
she was colonized places and had slaves and you mm-hmm. know stuff like that. So she right. wasn't perfect, but in terms of her sh- ability to shed gender roles, <laughs> right? Well, that's it's her the... understanding of and subverting of gender roles was pretty unparalleled for the time. Well, yeah, Frances McDormand had to walk a, a tightrope with her performance because it very easily could have come across as a shrew, as a a, shrewish. Yeah, a whiny wife who is just pushing her husband to do her bidding. But Frances McDormand being the best of our generation, next to Daniel Day-Lewis, next to Meryl Streep, and her co-star Denzel, she totally nails it. And she's a badass. And you understand her ambition. And you understand how her intelligence to form words that will motivate her husband that have meaning. They're not empty words. Like she's tapping into some serious trauma that they both had and is saying, what are you going to do about it? You can do something about it. I can't do something about it because it's 1600 and the world (laughs) won't allow that for me. But you can. But she also retains her, I think being feminine, the stereotype with that is that that means you're weak, which you had brought that up. But I think Frances McDormand is so talented where she retains her femininity, but she also channels strength, proving that, because I think there's nothing wrong with being feminine. It's just the, sometimes the connotation with that throughout history has been that that means you're weak well and i think that again it gives more power to lady macbeth slash anybody who plays lady macbeth because the ability to understand gender roles and how to use them to your advantage is where lady macbeth is coming from which i think is exactly what you're saying right i think that gives women so much more credit for their ability to like read the fucking room that no one's going to be taking us seriously unless we decide to manipulate people. And I think that that's unfortunately another way that women are saddled with this idea that women are evil or that they quote unquote to use another sort of Shakespeare colloquialism, like pour poison into men's ears to get them to do what they want. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the idea that women have to manipulate to be taken seriously, unfortunately is the way that things have gone But nowadays, it's like, now, even that's become a trope of where, like, men sometimes assume that women are manipulating rather than just being themselves Mm -hmm. and not taking them seriously because they're all like, oh, I don't trust women. Like, they're always manipulating me and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Well, (laughs) another mistake that movies make when they're trying to write strong female characters Mm. is that they're like, okay, they're going to act like a man. Yeah. They're just going to be manly. Yeah. You know, the quote unquote manly. Or uh, another unfortunate spinoff of that is the the cool girl who can play video games, but is also, and like skateboard, but is also emotional, right? Right. That, yeah. That stereotype. <laughs> right. Which is, you know, stories like this break that mold because she is a wife who who doesn't, act like a man she acts like a woman but very much is strong and intelligent and all the things you want to see out of any characters i mean just taking sex out of it you know whether or not she's a man or a woman like it it doesn't matter it's just a a really interesting character well one of her most powerful lines is unsex me here that Mm -hmm. whole idea of unburdening yourself of gender roles opens up your ability to act. And again, I think that underlines what Shakespeare is saying mm-hmm. that gender roles box you in. And I think that honestly, that's why I asked you about the aspect ratio of this film, because I think that whole idea of being boxed in because of having to check male or female mm-hmm. is, you know, pushes people to an extreme that doesn't have to be there if we just accept people as they are. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> totally. Agreed 100%. I'm glad you brought back aspect ratio because I did want to talk about some technical aspects of the movie and how it led to a slightly less impactful ending for me. So I know that they were going for a stage-like production. And for most of the movie, I was admiring it from that aspect. But when it finally got to the siege on Macbeth's palace... They have that great shot 
were Duck and Son Malcolm, played by Harry Melling from Harry... Another Harry Potter alum. Yes. And the Queen's Gambit, Queen's Gambit alum. Yes. As well. Were his army, they become the forest. Dunsinay. Yes. Dunsinay would. They all put the leaves above their head and move. So when... Burnham would. Sorry. Not Dunsinay. Burnham would. Gotcha. My bad. My bad. Um, how dare you? <laughs> uh, were they're the great shot where they're marching forward, but e- you know, even that is shot like a small, st- a narrow stage production. Really and cramped. I, yeah. I want to correct something. The aspect ratio was not four three, uh, which is Academy. It's a slightly um, more rectangular aspect ratio, uh, one point three seven by one, which it, it's it, they both are boxes. All right, <laughs> they both look like squares, but um, but. At that final battle with Macbeth and Macduff, I got to a point where I was like, well, this is a movie. You can make it grander. You can have more action. I'm not I'm not saying make this an action movie, but it seems like Joe Cohen is moving through this material at such an economic speed that the ending kind of went and and went away anticlimactic yeah it, not necessarily anticlimactic just very quick and not as epic as the story would suggest there's that great moment right before macbeth faces off against macduff where he fights malcolm's brother i think uh, right you know in, in the hall where he throws the blood on him. that moment is great yeah where Malcolm's brother, his name escapes me. I can't find it on IMDb, but he comes in and Macbeth, sitting on his throne, clearly over this shit, <laughs> gets up, throws blood on his face, and then takes his own dagger, yeah. uh, his opponent's dagger, stabs him in the back. One of the coldest, Ooh, uh, it's... B- most, we all, when watching it, were like, whoa, yeah. that moment is great. Ruthless. I think that's the best moment of ruthlessness. Yes. Because there's hesitation when he murders Duncan. Yeah. But he is not, there is no hesitation when he drives yeah. that dagger into his neck. So that's you, fucked. So clearly he is a mighty warrior. I mean, that was already established with the opening of the movie. Yeah. With everyone saying, oh, he did so great. He did so great. But I think when you get to that final battle it's just it's over so quick and i wish it was longer i wish you got to see more of the actual siege because they they tease it they show them marching forward with the woods over their head and i know that a lot of the actual play itself the action occurred off screen and i admire the movie for being basically a stage adaptation in cinematic form. But I think there are instances where you can go a little bit outside that device and just make it more epic. But this movie is so committed. Committed. Oh, same word. Nice. To the authentic stage, simple Experience. experience that... I felt a little let down by it. I It didn't sink in as much as I thought it would. And that's something where it's like, okay, I've already mentioned how I didn't like how I couldn't follow the language. But this is something where it's very clear to me that if I was adapting the material, I would have extended that. Well, even the battlements where the fight at Dunsinane happened, like you're talking about, even mm. if they had expanded the walkway a little bit, it would have made it a little bit more grand mm-hmm. because it's it's almost only as wide as like shoulder width. Mm-hmm. And even that makes it feel like, and again, sorry not to bring up A Christmas Carol again, but something that's really delightful about going to a stage play like Hamilton or Wicked What's really fun is to watch how the stage production or the the stage production designers are able to make the confines of the theater fall away and make it seem like a massive set piece in a movie, like a Bond movie, Mm -hmm. rather than a confined space. And I think I totally agree with what you're saying, even if they had just brought that out a little bit i mean and you know we watched a featurette after the movie about how it was all done on stage sound stages but even if they had just made it a little bit wider 
Yeah. It would have gone to support that idea that Dunsinane is this massive castle that he's basically alone in trying to defend. Mm -hmm. And I think that would have even gone to support how much Macbeth has lost at this point. Like it's basically this just empty shell of a castle that's massive and impressive. But if there's nothing, if there's no like morality or character to defend it, he's lost. Right. Right. Because it's clearly a deliberate choice to make everything small, Mm -hmm. which works up to a point. But when you have a massive battle, just, yeah, get a couple more inches there. Or there's a moment where ladies scream off screen and Macbeth says, what is that? And then, you know, it's revealed that this castle is being stormed and Lady Macbeth has died. But it's like show show more of that. It, not don't show Ross killing uh, Lady Macbeth because you want to leave that up to interpretation. But show other members of his castle being slaughtered because Macbeth is clearly insane and, and created this downfall mm-hmm. for himself and for everyone else. Don't leave everything so much up to your interpretation because this isn't a a play. Yeah, like it is a movie at the end of the day. So that kind of lost it, 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 the, the, the ending lost yeah. me. I do appreciate, I will say, the movie is an hour 45. So I really appreciate that. Something we're seeing in the industry currently, movies are getting really long mm-hmm. and we're really tired of it, to be honest. I'm, I'm <laughs> sick of two and a half hour plus movies. I, there are plenty of exceptions where movies, long movies are good. Mission Impossible 6. Yes. And Glorious <laughs> Bastards. There will be blood. The Dark Knight. I bring up The Dark Knight because supposedly the new Batman with Robert Pattinson is supposed to be nearly three hours long. And I'm just, I'm kind of sick of it. Uh, movies should be two it's hours. It's not cute. Yeah. It's not cute. <laughs> movies should be two hours and two hours is enough. Don't go under two hours most of the time. But this is, it's very economical. I appreciated it. It moved very quickly. But... Ironically, it moved too fast, mm-hmm. and I was struggling so much to keep up with it on a story sense that as soon as it was over, there's no Macduff decapitates Macbeth and then picks up the crown. And I did like that addition to the story that Macbeth was reach he in the fight with Macduff, his crown falls off, and he was literally reaching for his crown. And his his ambition to get the crown is what ultimately leads to his death because Macduff decapitates him as he's coming up after picking up the crown. So yeah. I like that detail. But then after that, it's like, okay, Malcolm gets the crown and then cut to credits. And you're like, whoa, wait a second. Let's have a beat here. Like, sure. let's sink in the moment for a second. Well, and especially because Macduff is the vehicle of the more of Shakespeare's more emotional masculinity. And it's really important to see that Macduff's very emotional when the news is broken that his family's been murdered by Macbeth. And so I think it's really important to highlight Macduff's role in the play, Mm -hmm. right? Like Shakespeare is trying to say, you know, it's not right or it it isn't masculine to completely cut off your emotions and to not let them affect your actions so if you give more strength to Macduff, mm-hmm. then that i think that theme is going to come across a little clearer right and by cutting that off you you don't see that as much mm-hmm. yeah and i should say Macduff, played by Corey hawkins great Little performance. Yeah. Yeah. I had no idea that the line one fell swoop. Oh, yeah. Came from Macbeth. Yeah. All my little chickens in one fell swoop. Swoop. Yeah. I use one fell swoop all the time. I had a a ton of lines. Key to mention that it's one fell. F-E-L-L. Yes. Swoop. Not foul or foul. Yes. (laughs) Homonyms, but F-O-W-L or F-O-U-L. And I think it's very important to point out that Corey Hawkins also african-american so he's kind of like a younger version of macbeth and i think macbeth sees himself in macduff and that's what leads him he's like macduff is a person who 
is clearly going somewhere with his life where I wanted to be at his age. Well, so I should kill that, him. Not only that, but there's subtext to suggest that Macduff is actually going to follow in Macbeth's footsteps. Right. Because as much as we can sort of tout the goodness of him being emotional when his, he finds out that his family has been murdered, the reason that he had left his castle and left them unguarded was because he wanted to cozy up to the king of England thinking that he would be then sort of installed as a new place of power okay. a new place of power so it's like very interesting to mirror that yeah sort of journey for both of those people who also by the way has have very similar names Macduff Macbeth yes I know like, <laughs> very similar but thank you for explaining that to me because I had no idea why Macduff had left his castle unguarded right so that makes sense yeah. now. So, yeah, I don't know if we want to sort of wrap up this yeah, episode. But uh, something that I, I just wanted to quickly mention was you talked about how there are more minor characters. I wanted to call out Stephen Root. Everything that he's in is fantastic. He actually pops up in The Mandalorian. Yep. Uh, in a recent episode of The Mandalorian, he's in a lot of Coen Brothers movies. Yep. He, he he pops up in Coen Brothers movies for like a scene playing the weird guy. And right. funny, he plays the weird guy in this. <laughs> yeah, the porter who actually, so I, I listened to a production of Macbeth and David Tennant played the role of the porter mm -hmm. in that recording, which was kind of fun. And another person I wanted to point out was Macduff's wife, played by Moses Ingram. Great little scene tragic heartbreaking yes. scene how much fun she's having with her son she was in the queen's gambit oh right and then her son is immediately ripped away from her and murdered which yeah. is really sad but uh she that was, was effective they it, showed the soldiers throw the son into down into a fiery pit pit <laughs> and he disappears into the smoke so very tastefully done which, which transitions into a new scene yeah, the transitions yeah. in this movie are unreal. You yeah. have a lot of fades, and it fades from a landscape into someone's head or yeah. vice versa. Yeah, it kind of plays with like the perspective of yeah. characters, which, again, is really important because, as Shakespeare says, this may look like a flower, but there's a snake underneath or whatever yes. the line is. Yeah, so again, it's all about what you perceive is not always the truth. And actually, you know what? We didn't get into the discussion of fate and free will theme in here but basically all i was going to say was that the sisters the witches prophecy should be read as more of a temptation yes rather than a prophecy and so you always have that choice to fulfill because basically if macbeth had just waited for his opportunity to take power or be or be happy with where he was with his station, mm -hmm. then none of this also would have happened. So I just thought that that was a that's a great conversation about you know prophecy and temptation and yeah. fate and free will. It's a great snake eating its own tail type mm. discussion because Macbeth wouldn't have had his downfall if he had not heard the prophecy, but the prophecy foretold his ascension to power. Right. But there are details in there that didn't sit right with Macbeth, so he fulfills the prophecy by trying to defy it, mm -hmm. which is very interesting. Yeah, and also, uh, you know, I had read the play after I saw the movie, but it was very interesting. I had no idea that Ross would become a full-on third main character, mm -hmm. and from my understanding, that's a change from many stage productions. Yeah. So yeah, we had already mentioned Alex Hassel, but it was neat to see him play both sides he like we mentioned he would interact or kill anyone who was against him and his plan was to do whatever would benefit him mm -hmm. he had no allegiance to anyone and i think that's kind of suggested when he finally ends by not killing banquo's son but taking him on his horse i yes. think that's a really good hint that he's probably gonna fill that character's mind with his agenda Mm -hmm. and try to assume the throne possibly through him. Yes. And say like, hey, it was foretold that his father would ascend the throne after Macbeth was dead. That didn't happen. So now I have the rightful heir or something like that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, 
yeah, I guess the last thing I wanted to say was that the score fell flat for me. Whoa. We haven't talked about this the score is... yet. <laughs> Lore, this is crazy. <laughs> I'm not joking. I'm I'm literally not joking. That was my last note. Okay. That was, yeah, that was my exact last note that I did not like the score either, which is yeah. funny because on Letterboxd, everyone is going crazy for the scores by Carter Burwell. He is a frequent collaborator with the Coens. He did the score for True Grit. He did the score for The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, a, a bunch of other Coen Brothers movies. The problem is it sounds like those other movies. His mm. scores all sound the same. And it worked for True Grit because it's like a country type, you know, adventure score, but he uses the same instruments. There's no variety to his sound. And I don't think it it worked in this movie at all. It didn't, it felt anachronistic uh, is the term. I I totally agree. When I think of contemporary scores, I think of Phantom Thread and I think of If Beale Street Could Talk. And... I can't even remember what this score sound like sounded like yeah. other than the fact that every time it came in, it was distracting. Yeah. And that's obviously not what you want in a score. What you want in a score is to <laughs> underscore mm-hmm. the emotion that's happening in the scene. And this just took me out of it, unfortunately. Yes, agreed. We, we are in the minority here, yeah. but yeah. We, I, we're totally on the same page yeah here. it really took me it's a bummer and i think it's also interesting because technically if you want to take shakespeare right off the page there wouldn't have been a lot of score yes in an original production in 1612 let's uh-huh. say so this could have very easily been produced without a score so if you're going to add a score it's got to be you got to really nail it yeah and the fact that it did not takes you out well the coens have all this allegiance to carter burwell and it's like work with someone else like come on work with nicholas Bertel. mix mix it up a bit <laughs> yeah yeah so anyway that's yeah. i mean i gosh. agree well one of shakespeare's best four out of four because i don't know if you can find i mean his plays are pretty watertight mm-hmm. um this movie i would say two and a half out of four wow interesting i thought you'd go a little bit higher i would have to uh echo that two and a half out of four i think i just had a big problem with the ending and the score and being a little underwhelming but i'm totally supporting it winning for best cinematography being nominated for production design i'm praying that Catherine hunter gets a surprise best supporting actress nomination it's not gonna happen but how sick would that be if she got that she's the best part of this movie yeah i i think you're totally right the technical aspects of this costuming incredible i just felt like some heart was taken away agreed from actually seeing it on stage yes yes for me yeah i second that okay double 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 dare boils and buggerts what's the line (laughs) oh yeah i guess we didn't even talk about the inspiration of Macbeth on everything else but uh go listen to take a break from Hamilton. Yeah. It's a really great uh, motif that pops up in that song. Um, awesome. Something wicked this way comes. Cut. Cut episode. Yeah. And then we'll see you next week for our coverage of Rum Punch and the Quentin Tarantino adaptation, Jackie Brown. Can't wait for that. All right. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next one.